Um, it's my great pleasure to welcome you all to hear Danny Roderick, who's Professor of International Political Economy at the Kennedy School of Government. Um, Danny has um, written extensively in the areas of economic development, international trade, and political economy. And he, has, he is the editor of a brand new book coming out with Princeton University Press, In Search of Prosperity, which should be out this summer, I believe. Is that right? Oh, it's already out. Oh, excellent. It says two, July 2003. Um, Danny is um, a voice of moderation and intelligence in what has become the wilderness of, in the debate on globalization. And um, so we're delighted to have him speak with, to us here today. He's also an MPA alum and a PhD alum of Princeton and is a very good friend of Princeton. And so we're very happy to have you um, back home again. And I can say that there's at least a couple of people, including me, who were in Danny's precept when we were MPAs. And he was, um, at that point, a PhD student. So we're delighted to have you back. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, and it, it's, as you, as you uh, mentioned, it's, it's always nice to, for me to come, uh, come back to, to Princeton, where I have uh, uh, such uh, fond memories of. Um, uh, I, when uh, I was uh, first asked to, to come and, and, and give a talk in this colloquium and, and uh, uh, thought about possible titles in the context of the, the general theme of, of the return of morality, um, to international affairs um, and came up with the title for the current session, which is The Rights and Wrongs of Globalization. Uh, at first, I, I felt really uh, uh, smart um, having come up with, with such a uh, cute title. And then when um, I, I started to think more about uh, what I wanted to say and what my uh, main points and arguments uh, uh, um, is going to be, uh, I felt um, uh, guilty because, uh, in a way, um, the, the title betrays uh, the same kind of, of, of mistake and error I'm going to, to, to try to argue and, and uh, uh, we, should, uh, we should try to avoid. And the mistake is to, to think of um, globalization as, uh, as some kind of synthetic, uh, inevitable, um, almost uh, technology-driven uh, process that, that happens uh, outside of our own choices. And, and viewed uh, as such, we end up with discussions on whether globalization is a good thing or a bad thing, uh, what are its upsides and, and downsides, and come up with, with titles like the one that I felt at first so good uh, um, coming up with for, for, for this talk. Uh, so you, you end up uh, either loving globalization or hating it. Uh, you either take it or, or leave it. Um, but I think the important point um, and, and, a, and a key uh, message that, that I want to convey is that globalization actually is, is something that, that we design. Um, the real debate about globalization is, is not and should not be about something uh, such as globalization is good or bad. It really should be about the individual rules, uh, both at the national level and at the international level. Um, that we are coming up with, that we're designing, we're actively making up as we go along uh, that, that governs uh, the uh, economies both at the national and, and the international level. Um, so what we need to debate are these uh, rules and policies that, that govern uh, this process that we call uh, globalization, and I'm going to be focusing particularly on the economic dimensions of globalization 
And what we need to evaluate and question um, uh, are these particular rules, um, not uh, not globalization uh, per se. And let me start out at the outset with with two kinds of of illustrations uh, of how uh, making this distinction um, is, is, I think, important. Uh, One uh, from the uh, area of uh, national uh, development, uh, that the process of growth and development takes place at the level of of individual nations. nations. So when we ask, has globalization been good for economic development, um, well, it depends very much on on what part of the world you have been recently uh, looking at. Um, If you're looking at the experience of China uh, or at the experience of Vietnam, or to an important extent at the experience of of India, Um, three countries, uh, particularly China and India, which are huge, which house um, uh, the majority of the world's poor, Um, then you will say that, well, globalization has been uh, of tremendous benefit. Um, Without question, China and Vietnam in particular have have benefited uh, tremendously uh, from being able to uh, in- increase their exports, um, uh, welcome foreign investment, um, um, get themselves integrated into the world economy. And without question, the experience of these, the rapid growth of these countries would not have been possible uh, without um, many aspects of, of, of this process of, of global economic integration. But then turn to, to Latin America and the experience of Latin America in the 1990s with their globalization. Um, And here we have a set of countries that on the face of it, um, um, and it's a point I'm going to to turn to um, uh, a little bit later on, on the face of it we have countries that have in fact tried harder uh, than globalization, harder uh, to uh, integrate deeply with the world economy than than China or India or Vietnam have across a much broader um, uh, spectrum of of, of, uh, policy areas. And it's very hard to argue that globalization, as practiced in Latin America, has actually been good for um, the the, uh, experience with regard to growth, development, poverty, alleviation uh, in Latin America. Um, And I'll I'll come back to it. But let me just mention the obvious fact that that Latin America's economic growth um, in the 1990s Uh, even even if we leave aside um, a a natural rebound uh, that we would have expected to have uh, post the 1980s debt crisis in that region. Uh, Latin America's growth rate in the 1990s um, has has been um, actually lower uh, than the region's growth rate in the decades uh, prior to the 1980s. Um, And, in fact, it's very difficult to identify a single country in Latin America that is doing better uh, in the 1990s um, than uh, it was uh, prior to 1980. The only exception to that is, is, is possibly uh, Chile. Um, so uh, at the level of national development strategies, uh, it depends um, on what kind of, of development strategy uh, different, con- different countries um, um, Adopted um, how exactly they designed they designed their their uh, development and globalization strategies. The second illustration from uh, rules with regard to uh, not at the national level but rules with regard to international uh, economic uh, governance. Um, and here, let me contrast uh, um, our efforts or lack thereof uh, in two different areas in two different markets. One. 
the markets for financial assets, um, financial market integration. Uh, the second, the market for uh, labor, for workers, labor mobility across national borders. In the first area, uh, we have pushed very hard. Um, financial markets arguably today are, are as integrated as, as they were at the height of uh, the classical gold standard. Um, the uh, the gross capital flows uh, uh, in and out of, of countries, um, uh, so-called emerging market economies and elsewhere, um, are, uh, are, are, are vast, uh, much greater than, than, uh, than, than trade flows or, 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 or other areas. Um, and um, I think, again, and this is not quite un unrelated to the experience of Latin America, Latin America being the region that has pushed hardest uh, in the area of financial market integration, here um, the, the consequences have been uh, rather poor. Financial crises have been very frequent, very painful, and, and, and hard um, to, uh, to avoid. Um, in terms of n the net resource transfers that financial market integration has been able to, um, uh, to achieve um, in countries that have opened themselves up to financial market integration have again also been quite disappointing. So despite tremendous um, effort uh, aimed at, 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 at opening up markets financially and designing some kind of international financial architecture that would support that process, uh, we have on the face of it tremendous amount of financial market integration, uh, but very poor results. Contrast that uh, with the area where we have done actually very, very little work, uh, which is integration of labor markets. Um, ask an economist who knows nothing at all about the work of the WTO or the IMF and the World Bank and say, well, suppose you had to do one thing, one little change in the rules that govern uh, world commerce today. Um, that would have the biggest bang in terms of the efficiency of resource allocation in the world today, while having the most direct impact on the nationals of the poorest countries in the world. Which one change would you recommend? It wouldn't take very long for the economists to come up with the obvious answer, and that's to, to ease, relax restrictions on international labor mobility. Now, how you would do that um, is, is a big question. My preference is some kind of a temporary, um, um, a temporary work visa scheme that would, um, that would add only a couple of percentage points to the, uh, uh, to the existing labor force in the advanced industrial countries. So I'm talking about a relatively marginal relaxation in the existing restrictions on international labor mobility and doing it in a way that would provide incentives for return. Uh, so having made this a temporary scheme, um, and that's we can talk about that later. But I, for the moment, I simply want to, to, um, to signal this uh, tremendous gap uh, between an area uh, where the gains uh, would be huge if we were doing any work on it, any negotiation, any kind of multilateral attempt to make it happen, where the restrictions are, are extremely binding, um, and, um, and another area where we worked very hard um, um, and uh, continue to work very hard, but the results are actually quite poor. So it's all about the rules. It's all about the choices that we make. It's all about um, how we design um, the, 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 the rules of, of globalization, um, as, as these illustrations uh, indicate. Let me, um, let me 
say in, in, in uh, divide my, my comments uh, roughly equally um, between what I want to say about uh, policies uh, at the national level and uh, and policies at, at the at the international level. Um, with regard to policies at the national level, I think um, we face right now a, a, a tremendous uh, paradox. Um, the paradox uh, arises from um, the mismatch between um, a significant consensus that has emerged around policy-oriented economists around the world about what the right policy framework for growth is, a mismatch between that consensus and um, the reality as the, um, the, the, of growth and, and development around the world, which has not been kind at all uh, to, that, to that consensus. So when I'm talking about this policy consensus, I'm, of course, have in mind uh, something along the lines of, of uh, what has come to be called the Washington Consensus. Um, many of you would know the Washington Consensus is the term, the sort of somewhat infelicitously chosen term uh, by John Williamson in the uh, late 1980s, um, where, where he set out some uh, ten items where he thought that most uh, most policy-oriented economists uh, in Latin America and elsewhere had essentially converged on the kinds of things that countries need to do in order to grow. And these focused very heavily on things like uh, uh, macroeconomic stability, liberalization, privatization, deregulation, uh, opening up to international trade, um, and, 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 and similar things. Now, this, origin, this original list of ten items has since uh, been expanded greatly into a list that I sometimes call the, the augmented Washington Consensus, where um, uh, partly out of the realization that most of these items on the original list, um, which were uh, relatively easy policy actions to take, um, to, um, to deregulate the economy, uh, re reduce restrictions to international trade, remove price controls, and so forth, um, that these things were not enough, that countries needed to undertake a, now a much um, broader set of, of uh, institutional, uh, deeper reforms in order to underpin uh, these measures of privatization, uh, deregulation, liberalization, and openness. So we now have what is sometimes called a, a second-generation second reforms or Washington Consensus Plus reforms uh, that span things like anti-corruption, corporate governance, um, labor market flexibility, uh, fiscal institutions, central bank independence, and, and, and so forth, uh, which have essentially uh, become a, a laundry list of, of, um, of, of ideas um, that govern this, this, uh, this, um, this, this policy framework around which, uh, as I said, there is this, um, this, cons this consensus. Um, so the paradox is that, that if we were to give this well-accepted list to a, a, a visiting uh, a Martian, and, and said, um, you know, here is the list of what we think are good things that countries ought to be doing, um, and here is the growth record of the last 40, 50 years. Um, can you tell us, by looking at the actual growth record and comparing it with policy list, 
which countries did what in this list, or which countries in the world actually did most of what's on the list? Where is there that, that sort of, can you figure out what countries had the greatest amount of correspondence with what's on our list in terms of, of desirable uh, policies to follow? Um, and I don't, I don't want to say that the correlation uh, between his predictions based on the original list and the actual performance would be negative, uh, but I think I can say that the correlation would be extremely low. Um, that is to say, or to put this point rather differently, that if the, um, the worst performing, well, let me not say the worst performing, but if China and Vietnam and India today were stagnating, and if Latin America was booming, I think the Martian would be much better at being able to explain this on the basis of what's on the standard list than the actual reality. Now, as, I say, as I'll say in, in, in a couple of minutes, it is the case that countries like China, Vietnam, and India have received tremendous boosts from having moved in the direction of markets, so that if we want to aggregate up sufficiently the standard list to such very broad criteria as the importance of macroeconomic stability, as the importance of market-oriented incentives, as the importance of certain kinds of social protection to keep society um, and resilience of the economy together, that the correspondence is absolutely there. Those things are, in fact, quite important. But I think, and that's going to be one of my key points, the, 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 what the standard policy consensus has done is essentially take some of these higher-order economic principles and attach to them very specific institutional guidelines, very specific institutional recommendations, and that's where I think we have gone wrong. So um, when we look at countries that have grown rapidly, uh, I mentioned before, uh, that, uh, that the, the experience of, of Latin America has been uh, quite disappointing. Um, the growth rate on, in Latin America in the, in the decade of the 1990s uh, was, according to World Bank data, on per, per capita terms, was 1.6% um, in the decade of the 1990s. Now, compare that to um, the, their growth rate uh, in the decade, in the two decades before 1980, which was 2.9%. So a decline in the growth rate uh, in Latin America from 2.9% before 1980 to 1.6% after 1990. Now, you have to bear in mind that this is a puzzle in the sense that, that by our standard criteria, policies in Latin America before 1980 were just awful. These were the decades of macroeconomic populism, import substituting industrialization, infant industry protection, inward-looking uh, policies. And by most criteria, uh, policies in Latin America in the 1990s have been quite uh, good um, by any sort of, and we have a, quite a number of, 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 of these measures of uh, structural reform in the areas of privatization, openness, uh, deregulation, um, uh, tax reform, and, 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 and things of that sort that sort of follow closely on these, uh, these augmented Washington consensus uh, ideas. Uh, there has been tremendous improvement uh, in the policy stance of these countries in the 1990s, and, and yet um, growth has been episodic uh, at best, 
uh, in Latin America um, and for the decade as a whole uh, has been quite disappointing, not just across, comparatively uh, with regard to um, the rest of the world, uh, but with, with regard to their own uh, historical experience. Uh, sometimes the argument is made that Latin America's growth rate in the 1990s is, should not be um, uh, 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 so surprising uh, because the advanced countries in the 1990s have grown less rapidly in the 1990s as well. But I think there is a, there's a conceptual um, uh, error in this, that um, the growth rate of any country or region over a period as long as a decade ought to be a function of the, uh, the distance between its level of income and the level of income of the rich countries to which it's presumably converging, uh, but not a function of the actual growth rate uh, of the rich countries, uh, except for in any kind of a short-term uh, relationship. Um, and in terms of this convergence gap, uh, that is the gap between the income level of Latin America versus the rich countries, this convergence gap at the beginning of the 1990s was actually larger uh, than at the beginning of the 1960s and 70s. So in other words, the convergence factor that ought to have been there was actually larger in the 1990s, uh, ex again, expecting um, a, a bigger growth rate in the 1990s for any kind of, of, of reasonable uh, policies. Now, I think the, the, uh, the, the experience of um, uh, uh, a country like China is, is quite interesting in, in this context uh, because uh, when we look at what China did, uh, we, 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 we get an interesting glimpse at where some of our normative thinking on policies have been going wrong. Because as I said, it's not the case that, that China did not uh, a move in the direction of liberalizing and opening up and, and paying attention to market incentives and, and, and doing all of that in a macroeconomically more or less stable uh, um, uh, situation. What's striking, of course, is that the way that they have done this, the way they have implemented these principles, um, has been very different than the way that any economist trained in the United States going to a different country would have told them to implement these principles. So the, 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 the difficulty has been in the, in the details, in the policy details. And the Chinese experience is very interesting because it opens our mind to the multiplicity of ways in which these higher-order principles um, uh, which, uh, of, 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 of good, sound economic reasoning, uh, the multiplicity of ways in which they can actually be implemented in ways that are much more sensitive uh, to the uh, both existing institutional constraints as well as existing institutional opportunities. So sometimes I, I, I carry my, my students um, through a, a thought experiment, and I say, suppose that, uh, that we as, as well-trained economists had, were asked to advise the Chinese government in 1978 on uh, the reform policies that, that they ought to take. And what kind of a thought process would we, uh, would we go? Uh, what kind of things would we actually recommend? Well, um, suppose that, that that's, that's what we're doing. Uh, in 1978, anybody who stepped foot in China would very quickly realize um, that the, the, um, the, 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 the first point of entry ought to be the rural sector. That's where most of the people is, where most of the poverty exists. And it would be very easy for the, the Western economists to sort of figure out 
where some of the things were starting to go wrong. We had a system where prices were controlled by the state and, 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 and all the farmers organizing these communes had to deliver, make obligatory deliveries of grains and other things to the state, all in a controlled way, all, all through centralized planning. Of course, the Western economies would say, well, this makes no sense. What you have to do is, is liberalize prices. Um, in the agricultural sector, this way people can start taking advantage of incentives and feed themselves and, 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 and you can have a market system develop. Um, suppose you convince the Chinese of that, well, presumably they would come back and tell the Western economies that, that economists that it's, it's surely not enough to simply liberalize prices in the agricultural sector because, after all, these, these farmers um, are organized into communes. They don't own the land or the equipment with which they work, and simply letting prices rise wherever they go will not make any difference. And the Western economists would say, of course, that's why it's not enough simply to liberalize prices. You also need to uh, privatize the land, and this way that, that farmers will have the right incentives. Um, the, the next issue that would immediately arise would be an issue of, of uh, the fiscal system. Because under the previous uh, state order system, uh, the fact that the government obtained these obligatory deliveries of grain from the peasantry um, was an implicit source of tax revenue for the government. The moment that you um, remove this, um, the, the state order system, the fiscal revenues of the government have collapsed. Uh, the Western economists would say that's why it's not enough simply to, to liberalize and to privatize. That's, you also need tax reform uh, in order to make up for these lost tax revenues. Well, now we're going up into another problem. Um, now we have the fact that grain prices have increased. Uh, the workers in the urban areas are going to demand higher, higher wages, but they all work in the state enterprises, and wages and prices are all determined by the state, again, through the centralized system. Well, the Western economists would say, okay, even if you don't want to privatize the state enterprises, you at least ought to corporatize them uh, so that the, the state enterprises can uh, charge wages and prices that are appropriate to the new system of prices. That immediately gets you into the problem that these state enterprises are monopoly. The moment you give them autonomy to charge the wage and price that they want, they're going to act as monopolies. Well, the Western economist is a very quick answer to that. Of course, trade liberalization is the way uh, to uh, shortcut the, the monopoly problem. If you import price discipline through trade liberalization, these monopolies will have to act as, 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 um, as competitive uh, entities. Well, if you've liberalized trade, you'll need restructuring. Restructuring will need a financial sector that operates well. Uh, so you'll need a, a financial sector restructuring as well. You'll need uh, so, uh, social safety nets in order to take care of the people who are good workers who are going to be unemployed um, if, um, if, the, um, if these uh, state enterprises do face real competition. The point of this thought experiment is that by the time you sort of have gone through this and you've, you know, you've added up all the list of remedies that you've come up with, you have a fairly close replica of what's on the Washington Consensus. And the point is twofold. One is that that's why the Washington Consensus is not silly, because it is the end process and point of having sort of done a counterfactual exercise of all this kind and realizing how all these things are complementary and how doing just one thing is not going to be enough. You need to do a whole bunch of other things as well. But the second point, of course, and the nice thing about the, the Chinese experience is we know what they did. We know that they didn't do any of that. And we know that they still grew um, at phenomenal rates. Um, 
and therefore that it is a very important illustration of how, in fact, they achieved many of the same goals, namely macroeconomic stability, market-oriented incentives, and hard budget constraints, um, through institutional arrangements and policy choices uh, that uh, avoided this trap of thinking about the policy reform process as a wholesale institutional uh, remaking of, 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 the, uh, um, of, of the economy. So what did the Chinese do? Well, they said uh, we will liberalize, but we will liberalize only uh, on, at the margin. Um, so they, there was a, a system of, of a two-track uh, reform where essentially they grafted a market system on top of a pre-existing uh, state order system, uh, which they did not, um, they did not um, uh, eliminate. And the beauty of that, economists now can realize 20 years later, um, and there are now articles in the leading professional journals in economics that look back into that exercise and can figure out how, of course, incentives matter only at the margin. It didn't matter that the state order system preexisted. And this two-track reform system um, had the beautiful effect of, of creating what an economist would call Pareto-efficient reform, which is that you implemented market-oriented incentives, so you had the first best allocative efficiency properties of a market system, um, but it did not have any of the redistributive effects um, that a, the, 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 a, a wholesale liberalization um, of, of the agricultural pricing system and later the, the uh, industrial pricing system would have had. Um, the beauty of this was not just that, therefore, you did not get into political problems. It was also that, therefore, you could insulate the provision of incentives through liberalization from the, the, from the uh, fiscal side of the picture. Because once you maintain the, 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 um, um, the, uh, um, the state order uh, system in place, you did not, liberalization did not entail uh, uh, the undercutting of the fiscal um, uh, revenues. And therefore, it was a, a very, a very um, intelligent way uh, arrived at not through design, but essentially through experimentation, a uh, very intelligent way of insulating public finance uh, from the provision of, of supply incentives. We also know the experience with township and village enterprises. Um, this was another very important institutional innovation that, that the Chinese arrived at uh, rather experimentally. Um, if, if you were to tell anybody about the township and village enterprises ex ante, that this is, would have been an effective way of providing property rights and creating a huge boom, really huge boom, uh, in production incentives, uh, investment, and entrepreneurship um, in rural areas and small townships in China. Ex ante, it would have been very difficult to believe. Yet now, after the fact, because they have been so successful, in fact, were the driver of growth in China until about the mid-1990s, uh, we have uh, explanations of how, in fact, uh, in poor legal environments such as China, uh, providing, uh, having the local government be the control, have the control rights over enterprises might actually provide enterprises with greater security than having had a formal private property rights system, which, which however, would have been poorly protected uh, because of, of, of very poor uh, local judiciary system. Um, this is, in a way, the, the, the creativity of economists, if you will, that, that once something works, our ability to explain it exposed is, is relatively uh, uh, limitless. Um, but the, the, the important lesson in all of this is that if we have that creativity exposed, 
it's not at all clear why we should not have that creativity ex ante as well and simply assume um, that whatever are our, our higher order objectives, that there is necessarily only a single way of achieving, uh, achieving these. Um, through the particular menu of, of policies um, and institutional arrangements that's, at, um, that's on, the, uh, uh, on the list of the, the Washington Consensus. And I think this general principle that I think is, is illustrated so nicely uh, by the experience of China, and I can tell uh, many other examples from other successful places as well, uh, I think the general principle um, that uh, is... is um, exemplified by this is this lack of mapping uh, that, that the, um, are the, the, the important higher order principles that, that economists bring to the table when we think about the policy framework work for growth uh, essentially come institution free. They do not map into very specific institutional arrangements or policy prescriptions. And when we try to do that and do not uh, appreciate the diversity that is entirely possible, I think then we start um, coming up with specific recipes that, that, um, that are problematic. So if your objective uh, is productive efficiency, uh, these higher order principles would tell you that what's important are things like property rights so that you can ensure potential and current investors, uh, they can return the returns to their investments. What's important are things like incentives uh, in the sense that you want to align uh, producer incentives with social costs and benefits. What's important is a, is a modicum of rule of law such that there is a transparent and a stable and predictable set of rules under which investors um, can operate. Uh, but as I've stated, all of these principles, property rights, incentives, rule of law, uh, as I said, do have, uh, are, are institution-free. Um, in order to operationalize them, we need to provide answers to questions such as what specific type of property rights, what specific type of legal regime, uh, what is the right balance between decentralized market competition and public or regulatory interventions, which type of financial institutions and corporate governance regimes are most appropriate for mobilizing savings, is there a role or not for, for industrial strategy or industrial policy uh, for investment in non-traditional areas, when you ask these specific questions, um, it's these that we need to answer, and the, our standard agenda has taken very specific uh, uh, um, take, a very specific stand on all of these operational questions, but the problem is that they cannot be directly derived from those higher order principles, and that's, I think, where we go wrong. Think about the objective in the macroeconomic area. If we want to achieve macroeconomic and financial stability, what are the higher order principles? Well, you certainly want sound money. Uh, you don't want to generate liquidity beyond the increase in nominal money demand at reasonable rates of inflation. You need fiscal sustainability you, so that uh, you, can have, uh, you can ensure public debt remains uh, uh, reasonable and stable in relation to national aggregates. You need prudential regulation to prevent financial systems from taking excessive risks. Uh, but again, once you've stated those principles, sound money, fiscal sustainability, what does that actually imply for particular policy regimes? How independent should your central bank be? What is the appropriate exchange rate regime? Should fiscal policy be rule-bound? And if so, what are the appropriate rules? Um, what should be the, the state, what should be the size of the public sector? Should it be as low as 15% of the GDP, as high as 15, 50%? What is the re appropriate regulatory apparatus for the financial system? Uh, 
uh, or for the treatment of, of capital account uh, transactions. Again, these are the operational questions. We've taken, we've taken specific stand on these questions, but they're not directly derivable from, from the universal principles. I can go on, um, um, and, and uh, I think at the, 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 I think the, at the level of, of conceptual um, 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 uh, analysis, I think, where our, our approach to growth has, uh, uh, to, uh, and our development of a policy framework um, has gone wrong, I think, is in terms of, of uh, in a way, not, big, not that we've taken economics too seriously, in fact, it's quite the opposite, is that we have not taken economics seriously enough, that we've ended up applying what I would call rule of thumb economics as opposed to the seminar room economics, because seminar room economics is, is, uh, is, 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 is extremely uh, hesitant to make uncontingent generalizations or, 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 or unconditional statements about what works and what doesn't work. And I think that's actually the right discipline in the way that we think about uh, uh, the, the growth framework uh, in, in, in development policy. Instead, what we have done is, is turn uh, these into, into rules of thumb, and I think that kind of rule of thumb economics has not been uh, particularly useful. Um, what do we see in terms of the empirical record? So I, I mentioned the Martian, um, who was trying to make sense of, of, um, of, of uh, the growth experience uh, around the world. Um, I think what the Martian, if um, uh, he had not read um, uh, any, any uh, economics in the last uh, 20 years or so and simply looked at the empirical record, um, would come up with some interesting uh, stylized facts. Uh, one of these is that, um, in practice, uh, growth accelerations are actually uh, spurred or ignited by a relatively narrow range of reforms. Um, so when you look at South Korea and Taiwan in the early 1960s, you look at a case like Mauritius in the early 70s, uh, you look at China that I mentioned in 78, India since the early 1980s, um, uh, Brazil, Mexico, Turkey, and a host of other import-substituting industrializing countries before the 1980s. When we look at what starts this growth process, what gets these countries growing in the early stages, uh, it's a relatively narrow range of reforms. It's nothing like this augmented Washington consensus that the idea that, that they did um, that some, these 20 or 30 things or, or, or 20 or 30 things that's on somebody else's uh, alternative list. That's the good news. Uh, it's good news because it says that, that, that uh, it's actually starting economic growth in many of these countries is actually not as, 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 as difficult as, as you might think. Um, certainly, as you would think, if, if you were sort of coming at it from the perspective of the second generation reforms. The second uh, stylized fact uh, would be uh, that the, the policy changes that initiate these growth transitions or these growth accelerations uh, typically combine elements of what one might call orthodoxy, which is sort of received ideas, uh, with uh, unconventional uh, institutional uh, elements or, or innovations. I, of course, mentioned uh, China uh, with its uh, combination of partial liberalization and outward orientation with um, uh, 
institutional innovations such as two-track pricing, uh, the household responsibility system, township and village enterprises, and so forth. But again, the, the principle is general. Uh, we look at East Asia more broadly, the experience of Korea, um, uh, Taiwan, Singapore. Um, we find that these are cases where outward orientation and uh, market orientation has combined, has been combined with um, extensive amount of industrial intervention, industrial policies. Um, even in um, cases that fit, in some sense, the orthodoxy best, and, and here one would think of, of the example of, of Chile, and incidentally, Chile, not in the first decade of, 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 of Pinochet, which was a disaster, uh, but since about the, the mid-1980s, um, when a significant real depreciation, sustained real depreciation of the currency um, provided tremendous boost to, to tradables and investment in the economy, even there we've had interesting uh, departures from, from, the standard, uh, from the standard guidebook. Uh, the one that's m mentioned the most often, of course, is the, the existence of capital controls in Chile. Uh, Chile was the country that, that in the, most of, during most of the 1990s um, was most adamant at preventing uh, inflows and therefore actually ended up with a much better composition of its foreign debt stock, much less biased towards short-term capital inflows than the rest of the region. One might also mention the fact that the largest exporter in Chile still remains under state ownership, and that's, of course, the, 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 the copper uh, sector. Um, the, the third point, and that's really the, the third stylized fact, and, and um, um, the, uh, uh, in a way the, the discouraging part of this uh, uh, empirical record is that these institutional innovations do not travel well. Um, so that when you see some of these things uh, working um, in particular kinds of parts of the world, and you, if you assume that they will also work elsewhere, you're making a very big mistake. So the household responsibility system and the two-track pricing system of which I've talked uh, uh, in, in China, when Gorbachev tried to implement something very similar in the former Soviet Union in the mid-1980s, it turned out to be complete failure. Uh, import substitution and infant industry protection actually worked reasonably well in a large number of countries, for example, Brazil and Mexico, uh, but it did not work uh, in, in, in Argentina at all. Um, the export processing zone idea that sort of worked very well in Mauritius in the 70s um, uh, uh, simply doesn't work. In the, I think by now there are more export processing zones around the world than there are sovereign countries. Um, but uh, in most of them uh, we don't hear much about that because they don't, they don't work very well. Uh, gradualism uh, works very well in India, uh, but certainly did not work in, in, in Ukraine. So that's the, um, the disappointing stylized fact, if you will, which is that um, while we learn from the experience of these countries that they have done things somewhat differently, and that's those things that were somewhat different, uh, A, were causal in terms of growth, and B, um, we can actually explain them in terms of, of good, sound economic reasoning, that they're not actually heterodox. They're heterodox only in the sense of not having fit the rule of thumb economics, but they're not heterodox in the sense of, of uh, being contradiction uh, with seminar room economics. Um, that um, uh, that, that this, this, the fact that these things do not travel very well, I think, uh, needs to make us 
much less ambitious in terms of the, the role of the outside advisor of the World Bank or, or of the economist that comes from uh, 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 Cambridge, Massachusetts or, or Princeton, New Jersey, um, to, to be, for such an economist to be able to, to really make uh, a lot of progress in terms of designing a growth strategy uh, for countries that, that, that really the importance of local constraints and local capabilities and local opportunities uh, are, I think are, are, is, is, is extremely important, uh, but those, of course, will be much more appreciated by the domestic uh, um, uh, governments and domestic uh, firms uh, uh, than, than, than by the visiting economists. Now, the, the fourth and last stylized fact I will mention, because uh, I think it's uh, very important, is that sustaining economic growth is much more difficult than, than initiating it. I said before that um, getting growth uh, um, going in the early stages is not very difficult. If one simply looked at the number of countries that for a period of at least a decade experienced a growth rate, an acceleration of their growth rate by two and a half percentage points or more, uh, there's something between 80 and 90 cases of such growth accelerations around the world just in the last four and a half decades. Um, but if you ask how many of these growth accelerations actually um, lasted beyond that decade, well, we know that countries, the number of countries that have, uh, that have continued convergence with the rich countries are, can really be counted in, in, in the fingers of two hands. We're really talking about uh, essentially just a few East Asian tigers. If you want to ask uh, the question which developing countries have, um, have uh, had sustained convergence um, in the last four decades. What that is pointing out to is that most of these growth accelerations, most of these growth uh, um, transitions fizzle out. Um, and I think the most plausible explanation of what is happening is the uh, absence of a good, solid institutional underpinning um, in these economies um, that fail to maintain productive dynamism, uh, that fail to maintain resilience to external shocks, because the typical manner in which these, um, these growth, the growth booms come to an end is the inability to adjust macroeconomic and other policies uh, to an external shock, whether that external shock takes the form of a terms of trade collapse, uh, loss of export markets, or a reversal in capital flows. Um, and the key regularity here in the developing world is that countries that have been rather quick at managing these, uh, these, these shocks um, have been able to continue growing, whereas others, um, uh, uh, once they get these shocks, uh, often find themselves uh, embroiled in long-term crisis and in, unable to get out of it. A recent example of this comes from the uh, aftermath of the East Asian financial crisis. If you compare the experience of South Korea in 1997 and 98 and how quickly they were able to turn around versus Indonesia, um, I think you see the kind of difference that I have in mind. And I think um, the deeper underpinnings of, of, of this is um, the existence of, of uh, stronger institutions um, in a case like South Korea in 97, 98, uh, that enables um, the, the turnaround to, uh, through um, uh, the, the, the requisite macroeconomic adjustments, which in turn, are, of course, are contingent on various social uh, partners being able to agree on what those adjustments ought to be. 
Um, so we need, we, we, it's in those periods of crisis or when economies that are otherwise providing are, 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 are performing well, that they become, come under stress, then, then we understand the importance of these high-quality institutions in these societies. Um, and we need those institutions because markets cannot perform uh, without institutions. Markets are not self-creating, they're not self-regulating, they're not self-stabilizing, and they're not self-legitimizing. And each one of these weakness of markets uh, requires a set of non-market institutions, regulatory institutions, political institutions, uh, monetary and fiscal institutions, uh, institutions of, of uh, judicial institutions that are going to provide um, and patch up this system and provide um, 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 uh, this, this, this sustainability uh, to, uh, to uh, performance. Um, so the, in terms of um, uh, the, the two key messages um, that, that I'm trying to convey with regard to um, national um, uh, development strategies and, and how they relate to our discussion of, of, um, of globalization, uh, one key message uh, is the recognition um, that, um, that there is a very important dis difference between um, uh, institutional function and institutional form, that functions that good institutions perform do not map into unique institutional uh, designs. And I think this is a distinction um, that, that, we have, that we have missed. To say that you need property rights uh, has to do with the function that you want high-quality institutions to perform. That, that, that requirement doesn't translate into any particular type of corporate governance system, any particular type of legal regime. And, um, and as, as uh, the Chinese example demonstrates, you can paradoxically provide an effective property rights regime in a system where you don't have private protection of property rights um, much more effectively than than uh, other, some other countries like Russia in the 1990s was able to do despite an attempt to implement these private property rights through the way that we normally would want to do it through a formal private uh, property rights legal regime. Um, the second uh, important distinction is the one that I just made between sustaining versus uh, stimulating versus sustaining growth. Uh, I've argued that the two may require policies and institutional arrangements um, that are actually quite different. Um, one way to think about the shortcomings of the standard list is to say that, that nothing on the Washington consensus is really a wrong idea. It just happens to describe the features that successful economies have. Uh, but it doesn't tell you how to grow. Uh, because if the empirical evidence tells us something, is the policies that, that stimulate growth early on tend to be these, convention, these, these unconventional, messy, um, uh, uh, sort of messy uh, approaches, which are much more strategic, much more grounded in the actual domestic reality, um, and that by focusing policymakers' attention on these sort of long-run uh, sort of institutions that, that you need to have, in some sense there has been a, 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 that, that attention has been diverted uh, from the more strategic thinking that, that needs to take place in terms of what you need to do uh, in, in the short run. And once you, once you get growth going in the short run, actually it becomes a lot easier to think about this, these institution building strategies. Uh, those are become much easier to, to accomplish when the economy is growing uh, than when it is not. So strategically, this, bearing this distinction in mind, I think, is, is extremely important. 
Um, I, I mentioned that I wanted to, to talk about uh, both uh, policies at the national level and policies at the, at the, at the um, uh, uh, global level. And I've, I've spent too, way too much time talking about uh, policies at the national level. So if, if I can just use maybe only five minutes to say just a few things um, about, um, the, uh, about policies at the international level. Um, here, too, um, there is a paradox. Uh, the paradox is that um, if we, if we dis make a distinction between what uh, some people in, in trade uh, uh, call deep integration versus shallow integration, um, that is that, that a model, think of shallow integration as uh, the model under the GATT and deep integration as the model under the WTO. Uh, what is the difference? The difference is uh, GATT was really a very, very uh, unambitious project. If you think of how much liberalization uh, the GATT really accomplished, uh, it's actually striking how little of it there was. Because if you think of what really took place under the GATT was, first of all, vast areas of international trade were completely outside the rules of the game. Uh, so agriculture was not in included. Services were not included. Uh, within manufactured, you had large parts of manufacturers carved out as not applicable for the usual type of rules, so that you had uh, um, the agreement on textiles and clothing, the MFA, which basically put all of clothing and uh, textiles under a completely different quantity, quantitative restrictions-based uh, uh, regime. And even within the remaining manufacturers, uh, occasionally you would have VERs and other things that would put steel and autos and some other things, uh, would carve them out as well. Um, so we're talking about a, a, a process of liberalization that was highly focused on only on parts of the manufacturers. Furthermore, these rules really applied only to the advanced industrial countries. The developing countries were effectively left outside the rules of the game. They could do basically to the balance of payments ex uh, exceptions, infant industry exceptions, and so on. They could do whatever they wanted. So effectively, they were not bound by any of these rules. And, and the rules themselves uh, really applied only sort of really prohibited quantitative restrictions. You could still have any tariffs that you wanted, and even within those rules, you could have these uh, escape clause and safeguard action that, 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 or anti-dumping uh, whenever, uh, whenever you, you wanted. So if somebody had told you that these were the rules that governed the international trade regime um, under the GATT, you, know, you wouldn't have thought that this would have been a period of, of major, major explosion of world trade. In fact, that's, that's what happened. You compare the growth of the volume of world trade in the period since 1985 to the period before, the surprising thing is that the growth rate of world trade was higher uh, before 1985 uh, than it's been since 1985. So the paradox, once again, here is that we have, in a period where we have actively followed policies of deep integration, that is that we've now gone way beyond uh, that narrow gambit, narrow ambit, of the GATT. We've included agriculture services uh, into the uh, negotiations. We're no longer negotiating only about so-called border barriers. We're now negotiating about regulatory regimes behind the border. Yeah? So the regime is, 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 is much more um, uh, uh, ambitious. Um, and yet we have 
not simply measured by the amount of political controversy that the regime generates, which is, of course, you know, infinitely higher in the sense that, that there were few demonstrations against the GATT on the streets, um, and, and there have been quite a few uh, against the WTO. But even if you measure it, as I said, um, in terms of, of uh, the, the actual expansion of, of the volume of, of, of trade, uh, that, that uh, the, the, this period of deep integration hasn't even achieved uh, that particular objective. Um, with regard to the financial flows, uh, the international financial system, you would think certainly that deep integration there um, has had significant impact, and certainly if you look at either price convergence, that is sort of uh, interest rate arbitrage, or, or, or volume measures such as uh, financial flows uh, in gross terms, um, that, uh, that there has been uh, a, a lot more integration in, in, in there. Uh, but it's important to realize that some of the, that if you were to ask an economist, um, what would be your, the main goals of increased financial integration? Um, with respect to, to development. Um, what, what are the main objectives you're trying to achieve? Well, the economists would say, well, fi greater financial integration will uh, achieve greater cap net capital flows to developing countries, will allow cap capital to, to flow to the, to, from the rich to the poor countries. It will allow investment rates and therefore growth rates, uh, much more efficient financial intermediation and greater mobilization of investable funds in the developed countries. Um, and, and thirdly, greater ability to diversify, uh, portfolio diversification, other thing that might make these economies much less volatile and, and individual uh, consumption more volatile. Um, by and large, none of these things has actually happened. Um, net, net private flows to developing countries in the 1990s, I'm sorry, net private flows to Latin America, excluding DFI, in the 1990s was smaller than net private capital flows uh, to Latin America in uh, the 1970s. Uh, huge increase in gross flows, but actually a decline in net flows, so that if you want to look at how much contribution did the international financial system make uh, to savings and investment um, in Latin America in the 1990s, it has actually made lower than, than in the period before. Um, so there, too, um, we have had um, uh, results that, 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 don't, that don't quite measure up. And I think the, 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 um, the fundamental reason has to do with the fact that, uh, just as in the national arena, um, a sound, healthy market economy requires uh, high-quality institutions, for a global market, for a global economy to perform well, we also need uh, correspondingly high-quality global institutions of, of governance. Um, we figured out the long, hard way that the only way that a domestic financial market that is liberalized that can work well is if we have complementary institutions such as bankruptcy, um, as uh, uh, tough financial uh, supervision and prudential regulation, lender of last resort function, uh, good accounting practices, and so forth. Um, now, carry that idea to the international arena, of course it becomes immediately obvious that there's, that, that uh, even sort of the, 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 the weak form of international bankruptcy regulation that was 
uh, under consideration until recently and pushed by the IMF, the so-called sovereign debt restructuring mechanism uh, has not come to anything, and certainly in terms of global lender of last resort, a global regulator, global uh, judiciary that can enforce uh, international financial contracts, those aren't there um, and won't be there politically. So that means that what's much more important for the functioning of the, the global economy and the amount of, of uh, the volume of world trade and investment, what's particularly important is to have healthy economies. When you have healthy economies, you have better functioning and more integrating world economy. Um, and what we have achieved is that in the uh, 1990s, we have this tremendous bifurcation um, that many countries, in fact, um, uh, are, are, are no longer functioning uh, um, in, in a healthy manner, and that is, is much more direct contributor uh, to the lack of, of global economic integration than the actual uh, our policy attempts, our policy agenda that has moved, uh, that has tried to move in the in the um, in the opposite uh, in the opposite direction. Um, so let me just um, uh, conclude um, with. Uh, uh, with um, uh, three uh, quick points. Um, one is that I, I've made the argument that I, we really need to rethink uh, growth strategies uh, in, in, in developing countries. And I think too many countries in the 1990s uh, thought of a strategy of deep integration, a strategy of globalization as a shortcut uh, for development. And now uh, we've, we've learned that that is not uh, the right way to think about it except for a very few number of countries which are either historically or geographically advantaged in particular ways. Um, second point is that, uh, that we do have not adequately appreciated that economic globalization uh, is uh, necessarily limited uh, by the scope of desirable institutional diversity at the national level, um, and that uh, to the extent that we are shooting for deep economic integration, uh, we are in a, in a way shooting for the infeasible, uh, given these, uh, these desirable um, uh, reasons for institutional diversity, diversity in, in policy frameworks, regulatory structures around the world. Um, and third, um, and, and going back to my point at the outset with regard to um, different types of rules for globalization, that within the range of feasible globalizations, uh, we need to make uh, choices um, that globalization is not the synthetic or sort of fully technologically driven process, that it does make a difference what kind of rules we choose. Uh, and again, uh, I gave the example of, 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 of uh, some uh, types of, of rules that would make us, uh, in fact, uh, have the potential of much greater generating much greater efficiency and, and distributional uh, benefits, such as uh, rules, rules that would relax at the margin some of the, the restrictions um, on, um, on, um, on, on, on labor, uh, labor mobility. So um, uh, let me just uh, stop here. Thank you. Send around. Paul Sigmund in the politics department. Um, I've been studying Latin America for 40 years, and um, a good part of that study has been focused on Chile. Uh, so my reaction to your uh, uh, lecture is is based, I think, on, on that experience. And so I have some questions 
uh, about your arguments and then a question about your recommendations. Um, I guess I was a little put off by the notion at the beginning, uh, or I guess when I came in, I came a little late, but uh, partway through, uh, about convergence gap. Um, it seems to me that loads the dice already in terms of your judgment. Uh, that is, it says, what we have to do is converge the rich and the poor countries. And the, the measure of our success in, um, in, in a development policy is the degree to which we converge. Well, again, on the basis of my study of Chile, where r the distance between the rich and poor has increased, but in fact, the absolute level of the poor has vastly improved. Um, that is, the whole, the rising tide has, has indeed lifted all boats. Uh, it's lifted the rich faster, but the poor have gone from, you know, ponchos to ski jackets and sandals to Nike sneakers. Um, and, uh, uh, generally, I mean, the, the, the figures on poverty reduction are, you know, they've, as you must know, they, they've cut the poverty rate in half. Uh, in this period from the late 80s to the late 90s. So uh, I guess my question is, you know, why talk about the convergence gap? Let's talk about absolute improvements in the, in the uh, living standards of the, of the poor. Uh, then I guess the whole question of uh, uh, your some specific um, examples you gave, which you drew from Chile, I guess I have questions about uh, the capital controls. I think you applied it sort of. The capital controls, I gather, have been phased out now in, uh, in Chile, although they were, they were there. You had to leave money in for a year. Um, uh, and copper uh, was not denationalized because a chunk of the copper income was by a secret law, an interesting concept, uh, reserved uh, to the military for purchase of military equipment. But there's now talk about changing that law, an effort to change that law, and talk indeed about privatization, uh, which talk is, uh, is realistic since it is absolutely certain uh, that the next uh, president of Chile will, will be from the, from the Chicago boy right, uh, ex-Pinochetista. Uh, so uh, I guess so. I have a problem there with the with the the, uh, the specifics. Uh, I, I have a problem with the notion of net flows going down, you know, uh, being less, because uh, I guess there is. I mean, I've always I heard this argument in Chile for 40 years, and uh, the the difficulty is you have flows going out on former uh, investment. You know, uh, and then, uh, and that's the negative side. And if you have a lot of investment, you have a lot of flows going out over the years. Uh, and then you have new investment coming in, and you got, want new investment to come in, uh, uh, and that that's important. But I think the the the, the amount of invest of of repayment on former investment. Uh, is irrelevant to this question, uh, and, and in fact may indeed be very great because you've had a lot of investment in the past. Uh, uh, the important thing is to keep that investment uh, flowing. So uh, I guess, uh, you know, I look at Latin America today and there are a lot of people very unhappy with the Washington Consensus. Um, and there are, a lot, there are people trying, as always, to get to produce alternatives. Chavez is trying, destroying the economy. The Argentines have to decide tomorrow, uh, and, and in the runoff, which way they're going to go. Lula in Brazil uh, has been fighting the Washington consensus for, you know, for all his whole political career, 
But when he comes to power, he, in, uh, he initiates a lot of very interesting social programs, but doesn't change for the basic uh, elements, which are significantly influenced by the Washington Consensus. So I guess, I guess uh, my, so my, my question is, uh, to, to end this little speech, my question is, uh, what are the alternatives other than saying we, we, we don't want to implement the Washington Consensus too rigidly? Should we take a couple more questions and then have you respond? That's up to you, however you want to do it. Um, I think Angus um, had his hand up next. Well, yeah. You will. Yeah, we're going to take a few questions. And I would ask you, because a lot of people would like to get in, to please keep it sort of brief so that we can give Danny a chance to respond. Thanks. Um, I'll, I'll be brief. Um, I find your general arguments extremely um, persuasive. And I really just had two quick questions, one about the international rules, as it were, and one about the domestic rules. Um, I think your um, national message, which is in some sense, it's in your own hands, you know, use good economics, but be heterodox and find your own way. I mean, in some ways, is a very positive one. Um, one thing that I would like your comments on, though, it does seem that there are a large number of countries around the world, um, particularly, say, in Africa, and some Latin American countries, too, for which it's not at all clear that um, globalization in the sense of um, cheaper world trade and easier world trade um, actually presents any sort of opportunity at all. So the question is whether there are any policies which would enable a lot of those countries to benefit at all um, from the globalization from which other countries have benefited. The, the other thing that I wa wanted to come to, which I think is sympathetic to what you were talking about at the end, is, is it seems notable that the countries that were open early, open to international financial flows early, um, particularly Latin America and a lot of Africa, um, who had large debts in the late 70s and early 80s, are the countries that have done very badly since. And it's also true that countries like India and China that didn't indulge in that at all um, so could get a decent run at the opportunities that globalization um, presented. So this, it would be interesting to hear you comment on that. Thank you very much. Just briefly, I'd be interested if you could comment on El Salvador, uh, which is held up by U.S. policymakers, some inter international financial institutions as a, a model for economic reform, especially given the, the, uh, the rather exceptional and privileged status of, of uh, receiving two almost $2 billion a year in remittances. And then there's a gentleman in the front here. Uh, my question is uh, on in globalization is labor mobility. I fully subscribe with your idea that in terms of uh, effectiveness or efficiency, perhaps this is one of the key areas in which uh, globalization could focus on in terms of its benefit both from the labor exporting countries as well as the labor importing countries. I would like you to uh, comment on the specific measures other than what you have already said. 
that would uh, facilitate mobility of labor on the international scale. Thank you. So we'll give Professor Robert a chance to respond to those. Okay, I, 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 I hope I can hit all of them. Um, uh, let, me, let me start from the beginning with, with Paul Sigmund's um, uh, questions. Um, I think what you said about the importance of the absolute uh, growth rate uh, of the poor in particular is absolutely true, and I have, I, I would, my view on this, on this would be, uh, would be the same. I think, you know, Chile has, um, you know, if the official, if the Gini statistics are, coefficients are, are to be believed as, as experienced the largest increase in inequality that's been measured anywhere. Um, uh, in the last 10, 15 years, but because the economy has grown from everything, we, we know that, that the people at the bottom have actually done well. And so that's, that's, that's not a concern to me uh, as long as the economy is growing. You can make the same argument comparing China and India, uh, where in China inequality has risen, but because of, of much higher growth, actually, people in the bottom decile or quintile in, in China have, have been doing much better than those in India. Um, where the distribution has been more stable. Um, my point about uh, the convergence gap was in the context of, of a rather different technical issue, which is that um, what, what is the counterfactual? That is, what would you have expected the growth rate in Latin America in 1990 to be? Because when you tell people that Latin America has grown more rapidly, now I'm talking about both in terms of absolute poverty reduction as well as, as overall growth, um, uh, one response, and you say that, that Latin America hasn't done as well in the 1990s as it had done historically prior to its own debt crisis, um, then one argument is that, well, maybe that's not a meaningful comparison because the rich countries have grown less as well. And my point is that that's not the right comparison. If you want to do a comparison with where the rich countries stand, you need to do a comparison in terms of what the convergence gap was in terms of the the, 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 the rate of growth that goes with that convergence. So it was a rather uh, a side issue, I think, compared to what you mentioned, the capital controls. You're right that they've been phased out. Uh, but <laughs> when were they phased out? When the capital stopped coming. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, it, 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 so the, the issue wasn't that they, they gave up on the, on the, um, on the uh, utility of capital controls. It's just that you know, this is, they use it counter-cyclically, which is exactly how you ought to be doing it. Interestingly, um, now in the context of the U.S.-Chile free trade agreement, as, as you know, um, there are now heavy restrictions on, on, on whether Chile will be able to use these capital controls in the future. So that's, you know, that's, that's the price of getting Chilean tomatoes into the U.S. market has been, the ability, has been giving up on this. Um, now, I didn't quite understand the point about net financial flows, I have to say, because I, I don't think the argument with, I don't think the leading argument for, with, with financial liberalization was that it was going to make easier uh, for countries to service their pre-existing debt. Um, but you certainly would expect, what, although what you're saying is right in the longer run, you certainly expect the impact effect, the short-term effect of financial liberalization would be to enable a greater amount of net resource transfer from abroad. And it is absolutely true that over the longer term, of course, that would create greater repayment down the line. But you don't expect that to be the first thing to happen is, is, is you know, greater capital outflow. Um, um, I think you pose a, 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 an important question, which says, so what is the alternative? I, I think any thinking 
about the Washington Consensus and its alternative that is that is going to have 10 or 20 things on the list the same way that the Washington Consensus does falls into exactly the same trap uh, that the Washington Consensus did, which is what I was arguing for. Um, and, uh, you, know, if, if, you know, if economists can say only limited number of things about things that can be done in general, they should say only those limited things. So the, the, the right argument for the, against the Washington Consensus is, is not that we have an alternative that's going to work better. The right uh, answer is to say, here is, here is some general principles about that explains both the existing empirical variation around the world and might help explain why the Washington Consensus did not work. And the role of the outside advisor is much more uh, to be, uh, to, to be a, 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 uh, able to respond to policymakers that say, okay, if I want to do policy A, then the outside economists can say, well, I can probably figure out what the incentive effects are that going to be, what the general equilibrium effects are going to be. I can maybe quantify a little bit what the results are. So I can, I can help you in that way. But the idea that, that, that you can have people from the outside come and, and, and present an alternative, I think, betrays a wrong way of thinking about these issues uh, um, uh, in, 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 in my way of thinking. Um, Angus Deaton uh, uh, mentioned that uh, countries uh, w that um, have done well in some sense are those that started out with, with, with less uh, um, external debt and had in some sense much greater room. And I think that's true in two senses. One is obviously it limited uh, this pre-existing debt puts tremendous burden in terms of, of, of what governments are able to do, uh, who is empowered and, and and I think in particular it has that the effect of, of the pursuit of financial market confidence as the overarching goal of economic policy. And when it works, it gets you financial market confidence but doesn't get you growth. And if it doesn't work, it, it doesn't get you either. And I think that's the story of, of, of many of these countries. Um, but the, there's, a, there's a second sense in which I think these, the lack of these external entanglements um, I think may have, helped, may have helped some other countries, which is that um, in some sense the transfer of policy advice from the World Bank and the IMF uh, into um, the countries that did well uh, I wouldn't say it was less, but it was of a different nature. So, you know, China had tremendous amount of technical assistance and, and resource flows from the World Bank, but they never had a single structural adjustment loan because uh, they knew exactly that that's not the kind of advice they wanted. But, you know, for dams and power, you know, infrastructure, uh, they certainly could use that. Um, I think India has had more, but of course there it was much more of a self-conscious attempt at liberalization, led much more by the domestic uh, groups than, than one that, in fact, the World Bank was reacting, sort of trying exposed to justify what they were doing, their style of gradualism, rather than being the leader in terms of, of. so that's been another uh, manner in which I think this, this has affected um, the, the, the strategies. Um, uh, the, the hard point of, of what do you do for countries uh, that are, uh, you know, basically have, you know, are, 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 it'll take so much for them to start to benefit from globalization given so much that needs to be, that needs to, needs to take place. Um, I, I think, I mean, the main implications of my comments there were a, a somewhat different strategy. I think 
what we're telling countries in sub-Saharan Africa right now in the, uh, that are in the position you describe is, look, um, um, the, only, the, the way that you're going to be uh, developing is by having you know, good institutions and integration into the world economy, and these two things are linked. And now we're saying it's not enough simply to lower your barriers on, on imports. They, have, they require a whole host of other you know, institutional reforms as well. And so we're presenting them with a very extensive, very undifferentiated set of, 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 of requirements, at the end of which lies this fruit uh, that they're going to reap, which is uh, integration into world economy and growth. What I'm saying is that that's not the right strategic way of approaching their problems. The right, I think in, in cases like that, one really needs to think much more like a, a consultant thinks about a business plan for a, for a, for a firm uh, than I think the way that the, you know, the you know, PRSP process in the World Bank really is, which is this holistic thing of how do we get everything working. And there's much less really strategic thinking going on about sort of you know, uh, you know, wh what is the single thing that we can do that's going to get our entrepreneurs excited about, you know, undertaking some investments in the economy, whether that's going to be in the form of actually removing some government-imposed impediments or whether it's going to be actually crowding in private entrepreneurship and investments by some positive inducements on the part of the government, even if it takes heterodox forms like subsidies and, and tax incentives or whatever might work in a particular setting. I think we need to think in the short term much more in that kind of a strategic, uh, strategic way, realizing that the way to get growth is going to be through some of these strategic thinking, short-term uh, you know, investment efforts, and not through this sort of long, undifferentiated list of, of institutional reforms that, that, that are very poorly targeted at, at the immediate constraints of growth is, is, would be, is, is my sense. Um, El Salvador um, is an interesting question, of course, uh, because it's one of the cases where there's the greatest um, mismatch between the amount of you know, work that was done in terms of getting the basic framework right according to the standard list and where also you know, the growth is, is, uh, is so it has been very disappointing and it's not uh, – um, I, I wish I could say more about also I'm just starting getting involved in a project there. So, you know, maybe next year I come back, I'll be able to say more, but I can't uh, at this point. With respect to mobility of labor, I think there is, there's, a, there's a very long discussion. I think there is one um, – the, the scheme I had in mind was, was going to be essentially a scheme of temporary work visas uh, for periods of maybe three to five years um, that, uh, that might entail an expansion of the workforce of the developed countries by up to 3% of their labor force um, and how that would be negotiated, what kind of incentives you'd have to put in there um, so as to make sure that there's significant amount of return, migration, and um, couple of ideas there. One is, to, of course, to withhold uh, payment and wages until the return is actually accomplished. The other is to penalize uh, uh, ascender countries uh, and reduce their quotas subsequently if a large portion of their uh, workers do not come back, which would then create incentives on the part of the sender governments to find incentives and inducements to draw their, 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 their migrant workers back. Um, whether you want to do it under the WTO, under so-called the, the mode four of the services agreement, or, or you want to do it completely separately outside WTO. That's a long discussion, but let me, let me just uh, uh, stop it, stop, stop there. I think we have time for a couple more questions. Okay. So I think we have time for two more questions. There's one here in the middle of the room. 
Thank you very much, Professor Roderick, for your framework. And I think it's very challenging for our conceptions of development and what's possible. And my question is about um, your statement that a more, um, a more deep integration is very ambitious versus um, it may. So my question is a normative question. Is it then better to have shallow integration if it is very ambitious to have deep integration? And in terms of deeper integration as being very ambitious, is that because of um, a net, therefore should we have reform of the system such that it's possible that more developed countries um, are making concessions such that it is possible? Or is it simply an infeasibility of international law or institutions to affect um, countries on a national level or perhaps internal constraints of the developing country to actually benefit or to absorb um, a more deep integration. So my question is first a normative one, then if deeper integration is then better, then how to achieve that? What then are the barriers to deeper integration? Thank you. Let me just say maybe, or, or, I think that's, um, the, the main question there is that, that everything else being the same, deeper integration is better than shallow integration for the pure, simple economic reason that, you know, more market integration is better than less market integration. I think the problem from a normative standpoint is that that objective clashes um, against um, the, the objective of um, uh, desirable institutional diversity around at the national level. Because right now, the main barrier to deeper integration are institutional and legal discontinuities at the national border. These institutional and legal discontinuities, differences in regulatory systems, differences in legal systems, uh, the existence of, of sovereign risk in financial markets that exist due to the existence of national sovereigns that are different, all of these create transactions cost uh, to international trade and international capital flows in the same way that tariffs or capital rest account restrictions would. Now, the fact is that now we've gotten risk, risk, rid of all the tariffs and the quantitative restrictions at the border, and it's becoming much more transparent how these institutional discontinuities at the national borders themselves are an impediment to trade. And therefore, an agenda of deep integration would entail uh, the elimination of these institutional discontinuities through various schemes. Uh, one, of course, is much greater institutional harmonization, and the, 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 the uh, international agreements on minimum standards and various things. For example, in the WTO now, uh, you can view TRIPS, the Intellectual Property Rights Agreement, essentially as having been one critical step there where you provide minimum patent length and so forth. Um, that's actually a bad example in the sense that there is no clear efficiency gains from that, but you can easily imagine, you know, from, you know, uh, greater regulatory and, and institutional harmonization as a way of actually um, uh, uh, trying to reduce uh, those transactions costs. So where the normative trade-off is between the trade-off of, of, of getting the benefits of increased market integration globally versus the benefits of desirable institutional diversity at the national level, and that institutional diversity is grounded, of course, in the needs of different countries at different levels of development, different cultures, different social preferences, to have those different systems. So it's, 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 so it's, it's almost like the analog when you think about, about uh, domestic um, federalism, that the trade-off between, uh, uh, you know, we want a single 
tax rule, on the other hand, different communities have different preferences, so we always strike a trade-off. And uh, we don't say we're going to maximize only on one particular margin. The, the, the argument is exactly the same, and I think we've forgotten this particular trade-off, and that's why it's neither feasible nor desirable, as I was saying, to push on this deep integration agenda. I'm going to take one, one last question here. I'd like to ask about the capriciousness of investors, possibly. Uh, I was at a, a talk about five years ago by a Russian ambassador in Washington who was uh, complaining rather um, vociferously about how much more slack we seem to cut the Chinese than we do the Russians in terms of uh, investment uh, options and stuff like that. And I wonder if there's a certain amount of uh, arbitrariness that uh, might have something to do with the outcomes in some of these countries. I think the, the answer seems to be yes, and uh, it's one of the, the, the puzzles. I, I think, uh, you know, people are increasingly appreciating that, that you need to be, you know, more of a, of a, of a psychologist to understand often the way markets work than an than, than, than economist. I mean, um, so, uh, yes, I, I think there is these, uh, these, these things that are, that are harder to understand. Um, I, I think that a lot of the reason that, you know, that, China and Russia in the way that you say it's they're treated, being treated differently is because pretty much everybody thinks that China in the short term will be okay. So if every, if everybody thinks that they'll grow and, and so if every, everybody thinks everybody else is going to invest, that's not a bad place to invest. I think that, by the way, is a very fragile uh, thing that, that uh, um, I think particularly given the challenges that, that China faces and if they are not able to maintain growth, it's very easy to see how that, that, could, that could very easily unravel, and then you can move to a completely different. Uh, the fundamental thing about financial markets is, 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 you know, I think that was the beautiful analogy that uh, Keynes um, had, had um, uh, come up with regarding the uh, financial markets, or the, in this case, the stock market working like the, um, like the, um, the beauty contest um, at, in its time when newspapers would, would organize these contests where sort of if, if you won, uh, you know, who was going to win the, the beauty contest, by, um, then you, know, you would win a prize. And Kane's comment was that, well, uh, the incentives here are obviously for not, everybody wants to vote not for the most beautiful contestant, but who they think others will think is the most beautiful contestant. And financial markets are exactly the same. Uh, so it's not necessarily the fundamentals that matter so much as what you think other people think are the fundamentals, and that's you can get all kinds of infinite regress and multiple uh, equilibria when, when you're thinking in those terms. Hey, um, I think uh, we want to thank you for a really provocative and stimulating talk, and um, please do come back often. Thank you. Thank you. There's um there's lunch. Do you have time for lunch? Are you? I have, I have, yeah. Um, I What's have your schedule? I, I, oh my God! I have to. What time is my uh, limo?